Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is extraordinary. Uh, with us today is Jim McCarty, and Jim is a Liverpool-born, raised in London, uh, and is best known as the drummer of the Yardbirds. Uh, he is an absolute music icon, and Jim, unbeknownst to you, I saw you perform with my uh, partner at Stillwell, my company, uh, with my partner Lance, at the Blue Note in Tokyo. Oh yes, that's right. I, I saw that before. That was that was a great great place to play. It sure was. Jim, I, I want to start. I want to go back to early days and uh, to the Hampton School and the first member of your band that you met, I believe was at that school when you met Paul Samuel Smith. Yes, yes, we were in the same year at Hampton. And then we, uh, we, we really hit it off together and we loved music. And we, you know, we used to play in the school group um, and play in the local dances, you know, local, local pubs. Um, and then we play at the school dance in the interval, you know, when the um, the orchestra or whatever <laughs> had their break. We play rock and roll and everyone would go mad. And, and what were you listening to then? Oh, all the all the stuff from the States, uh, you know, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Everly Brothers, uh, Gene Vincent, Johnny Cash. All, all that great stuff that came out in the 50s, Elvis, you know. Uh, and we play all those things in the, in the school group. There were all these wonderful, interesting characters that are sort of lost in history. We had at our event in New York a few years ago, a friend of ours, uh, Rob Schwartz, he brought Andrew Lou Goldham to our event and yeah. had a conversation with him. You know, yeah. you know, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you knew him and Brian as well. Yeah, well, there was, there was some, yeah, there was some great cat individuals. You know, they were individual people uh, uh, compared to now. I don't know if there if there are such individuals. Probably are somewhere, but um, there were a lot of lot of individual. But you know, like Giorgio, our manager, who, who lived not far from where you are now, and. Uh, he was, uh, I mean, he, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a real character. Tell us about Giorgio Gomelski, because you, uh, that was exactly where I was going. He was this incredible guy from, I think, Russian Georgia? Yes, but he was a mixture. He, was a, he had Russian uh, father. I, I don't know what it was. We had Russian father and an Italian mother or something, and he, he was brought up in Switzerland, so... It, he had a very, very strange mixture of, of uh, nationalities. 
And, and he was your manager and also owned and ran the Crawdaddy Club. Yes, he, he ran the Crawdaddy and he missed out on the, on the Rolling Stones. That's where Andrew rolled them, sort of pinched them from under his nose. And um, I, I think he, he wanted them. So he made sure he got us because we followed the Rolling Stones in the club. So explain what that meant because the Stones were like the house band at the Crawdaddy. And then yes. Giorgio was looking for a replacement for them, and that's how the Yardbirds yes. got there? Yeah, yes. And so I remember we were rehearsing in, in a pub in uh, Richmond, and Giorgio came to have a look at us to see what he thought. And he told me late, he told me a long time later, a few years later, that when he was walking up the stairs, he heard us doing, you know, we were playing a blues song, but we did what was called a rave up, you know, we did a big build up in the song. That's what we used to do um, when we'd all double up the tempo and everything. And uh, he thought, oh, this group are, you know, sufficiently different from the Stones to to uh, to warrant, you know, signing them up for the venue. So that's how we got the job. Amazing. And who was in the band then? Um, that was... Um, Paul Samuel Smith and myself, and Keith Ralph was a singer. Chris Dreyer played rhythm guitar, and uh, lead guitar was Top Topham. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who, who and they were all at the. Apart from me and Paul, we went to Hampton, but the other three were all at um, Kingston Art School, which was a few miles away, just sort of by the side of the river. And I saw some early clips. Of uh, you guys on TV, it was before Top of the Pops. I think it was a show on UK TV, another music show. Yes, yes, yes. And I saw an early clip of you guys doing "I Wish You Would," which I think was an old Bo Diddley tune. Yeah, yeah, Billy Boy Arnold actually. <laughs> we we we, we that. I think that was our first TV, and we were playing with uh, uh, Peter Paul and Mary, and it was a, a show on Granada Television that was a uh, director called Johnny Ham, uh, and it was up in Manchester, and they had a very very unusual set, and it looks it looks pretty cool now actually when I see them. When I see those playback, well, it was amazing because the set was full of people and you know go-go dancers right behind yeah. your, your drum kit. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was a very, uh, very unusual setup, and we got to meet Peter, Paul, and Mary, and they they told us about Bob Dylan. This must have been like 1964 or something like that. <laughs> amazing, amazing, and. Uh, there were so many other great clubs there. Did you guys play the Marquee Club also? Yes. Yeah, we were regular there. Uh, that used to be in uh, Water Street when we played there. Those, those years, they're all, I think the 100 Club is the only one that's left now. But yes. you, know, you could go on, a, on a, any night and you could see unbelievable talent. I know, I know. It's amazing. Yeah, you could see, you know, 
us lot of the pretty things or uh, you know the kinks probably played those clubs um uh, lot, lots of other lots of other contemporary bands you know the animals they kicked, they were in Newcastle but they came down and played played the south very occasionally <laughs> And somewhere along the line, Sonny Boy Williamson comes across you, you fellas, and you come across him. The king of the harmonica, Sir Sonny Boy Williamson. They used to bring over... um, uh, tours of a blues singers at one at one point about 1965. Uh, all these these blues singers like Sonny Boy and Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, they all used to come on as a, as a show. This time, ladies and gentlemen, it's got to be keep it to yourself. And they play about half a dozen big venues in in England. <laughs> And then uh, we were doing a gig in Croydon, which was near one of the venues. And um, Giorgio decided to bring Sonny Boy down to have a look at us. And of course, you know, he, he probably, I think he came down with some other uh, other blues singers and they all sat in, you know, as as, as they did in those days. And um, Giorgio said, well, why don't you stay Sonny Boy and we'll do a few gigs and we are birds of be your backing band so he he liked it he liked london you know he was a big star in london so he loved it sonny boy A lot of the American blues and jazz musicians were treated much better in the UK and places like France than they were in America. Yeah, I think I think they were. I think they were. Um, I think in America it was always very divided, wasn't it? There was a, a, a black scene and a white scene, and they, they didn't really mix very much. So. Um, but all, all the all the black blues guys were very quickly accepted. I remember seeing Muddy Waters. He went to a uh, he was playing a gig in in Soho in London, and he had loads of people all trying to shake his hand, and he was idolised completely. Yeah, there's a great uh, clip that's out. It's actually about 45 minutes of Mick Keith and Ron Wood at the Checkerboard Lounge in Chicago with Muddy Waters. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. Yeah, I have seen that. That's great. Isn't it great? Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Really good. I love that. Um, So all of a sudden, a hit finds its way to the Yardbirds. 
and For Your Love is recorded and absolutely blows up. Talk about For, yes. For Your Love. Well, For Your Love was a bit of a different a different sort of song. It wasn't a blues song. It was a sort of very moody, unusual type of thing. And um, the, the guy that had it was a publisher who was looking, you know, looking for someone to record the song, you know. Uh, and he, he he saw us actually at um, uh, Hammersmith Odeon, as it was then. It was a cinema. Um, became the Apollo after. But it was... Um, a venue where the Beatles were playing and we were supporting and uh, we were part of the support groups, you know, a few support groups. And, and this guy saw us and he thought For Your Love would be great for us. So he contacted Giorgio and we all went round to his apartment, you know, and had a listen to the song. We all liked it, but Eric didn't really like it because it wasn't a blues song, and you know he didn't like the way it was all set up politically with Paul Samuel Smith sort of taking over as a producer, and uh, you know it's a long, a long story. But so he de- he he decided to leave the band at that time. So take a step back, as Top was in the band, and then Eric joined or replaced him. Well, yeah, Top was in the band and he was younger than the rest of us and he was studying at Kingston Art School and he was a very good artist. He was a good prospect and his father was an artist and he wanted uh, Top to carry on. He didn't want him to, you know, hang out with a, a load of retrobates like us playing all night gigs and everything. So um, he put pressure on and... Top had to leave, so you know we were looking for someone else, and um, Keith suggested Eric. He was also at the art school, you know, who had a bit of a reputation. So he came down and uh, auditioned them. <laughs> that was history. Yeah, it sure, it, it sure was. So yeah, that must have been odd. All of a sudden, you find yourself with this massive hit and no lead guitar player. <laughs> Well, we were very lucky. We were always very lucky. We always fo- fell on our feet because uh, suddenly, you know, somebody recommended Jeff Beck uh, and uh, Georgia went down to see him and his other band. He, he was playing in a venue called Eel Pie Island. It was another another famous venue near where we were. Um, and uh, they, they got Jeff to come and audition of course you know they all wanted the gig because it really uh you know he was replacing Clapton it was a great guitar gig you know it was a uh a great platform for lead guitar amazing and Jimmy Page was sort of in your world also wasn't he well Jimmy Page was asked to, to replace Eric but Jimmy was playing on all the records in London he was a a very uh, busy session player and played on all sorts of things, you know, Gene, Gene Pitney and uh, Brenda Lee and all this sort of stuff uh, and rock, some, you know, some rock and roll. But um, he was so busy, he didn't want to join the band. But actually, he was re- recommending to get Amazing. 
Jeff was his understudy. He'd do sessions if he couldn't do them. Amazing. And, and you touched on, you know, working as a support act for the Rolling Stones. All the clips uh, that you see of that era, these amazing shows, seem like the sound was awful. That the women in particular were screaming like hysterical joy. And there you were lots of clips you would see where the band sometimes couldn't even get through the shows because there wasn't real security and the fans would just like tackle. You know, I saw something where they're tackling Mick and Brian Jones and, you know, and uh, that Charlie is my darling film, if you've seen that one. <laughs> right. yeah. What was that like, Jim? Well, it didn't happen to us so much. I mean, the Stones were, were it was Mick Jagger, you know, he was very, very popular, and the Beatles, of course. It didn't happen to us, but they, it, we did get a lot of that. And uh, <laughs> I remember a funny thing. We played um, in the middle of an ice rink. I think it was in Long Island somewhere, uh, you know, when we came over to the States, uh, and we we had to walk across the ice to get to the stage <laughs> and all these with all these girls sort of grabbing us it was like really man slipping over it was, a, it was a nightmare it really was and that was a big deal to go to the states wasn't it oh yeah in those days uh, that that was the big dream of all, all the the english groups because um you know that that was like real Everything, everything was enlarged, and the, the whole the whole world suddenly became huge. You know, there was there was music, there was sunshine, there was you know real old cars and uh, movies and everything that you'd seen on the TV. You know, it was heaven. And Jim, you, as a drummer, you know, you really drive, you're like an engine driving the band. And I know that one of the uh, bands that you guys all really like was Booker T and the MGs. Did, how much yes. did that sound, and I guess to some degree also the sort of the fullness of the Motown sound, which I think you really start to hear in I'm a Man, um, how did that all, you know, come into your heads and ultimately come through, you know, musically? Well, there was so much good music. There was the Motown and the, there was the blues and there, were, there was the jazz. Um, and, of course, when you got to America, you could go up, go out and see it, you know, if you had you had a free night. We saw some great people. <laughs> uh, some amazing uh, some amazing jazz, you know, in the village, like Greenwich Village. But <clears throat> we always did our own thing with with, with songs. And if the if the right song came along, we'd always do uh, try and make it slightly different and do our own versions. So um, something like I'm I'm not talking, you know, it was a Mose Allison song, just a regular jazz song on the piano. Um, I don't know how it happened, but we sort of ripped it all up and uh, Jeff came up with these great guitar riffs and, uh, you know, I came up with the, the 
bit of a strange rhythm and it just worked. It, uh, but that's what we did. We changed songs quite a lot to um, try and, I don't know if we were trying to get our own identity, but we were trying to have fun with the music right? and just mess around with it and let, let's, let's have fun and make it exciting. I'm talking, that's what I've got to say. Because you really did create, and the sound of the band evolved, um, and it sort of almost, you know, you really presaged the whole psychedelic movement in so many ways, yes. and had such a huge influence. That was a big leap from where you guys started just a couple of years earlier. <laughs> I know, but it was so dull to us to just play covers of the blues songs, you know, doing a twelve-bar sequence, which was very you know very predictable um so we we just wanted to just make these songs a bit different and put our own little thing in there and uh every, everyone put their own ideas in and of course best of all was jeff and he had so many sounds and he, he, he loved to um you know bring out all the all the different sounds on on each song and, uh, and he was very 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 creative as he still is yeah, amazing. And I guess the opening of Heart Full of Soul, that whole sound, he created that sound. Well, yes, it was it, because it was already there on the, on uh, Graham Goldman's uh, demo record. But um, yeah, he, he originally we were going to use a sitar player and uh, Giorgio had booked a sitar player and you, you, went, you went in the studio and there was a sitar player sitting on the floor in the, in the vocal booth <laughs> with someone playing the tablas. It was, it was quite interesting. But the sitar didn't really have that bite to it you know, that, that Jeff had. He had that sound, you know, that real explosive sort of bite, bite of sound that uh, caught, caught your ear, you know, straight away. Amazing. I know no, it's uh, <laughs> such a, and, and so timeless. So then somewhere along the line, Jim, you end up recording with Sam Phillips at Sun Studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another idea of Giorgio's was just to go, I think we were traveling down the south and we were around Memphis. So he, he said, oh, why don't we go in? We're going to and, and get Sam Phillips to do a session. It was all very hit or miss, you know. <laughs> you never quite knew where you where you were going or whether it was going to work. It was nothing planned, uh, and he just rang up Sam, and Sam Phillips was out uh, fishing. So we were just hanging around the studio waiting for him to come in. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got going about eleven o'clock at night, and we did we did some songs and, and it really it was great fun really worked and, and your uh, drums so such a signature part of train kept a rolling you like you almost created a new sound with the drums yeah a lot of a lot of people seem to have caught on to that for some reason on direct de bouton rouge bien oui les yardbirds on a les yardbirds c'est toujours à la batterie jim mccarthy merci pour le petit sous roulement de batterie c'est très chic la guitare jim
you know, quite fast, quite quite pushy, quite aggressive, you know, and exciting. And it was a train. It was all about a train. And uh, so let's do a bit of a train <laughs> train noise to it. <laughs> and of course, the train and the yardbirds sort of went together because the yardbirds would travel around on trains and things. The real the real yardbirds, anyway. And so, you know, the band keeps going, more hits, and eventually you end up with both Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck in the band. Yes, yes, which was quite crazy, really. Um, uh, by the time Paul Samuel Smith had left, it was all too much for him. Because it was very, um, you know, it was very tiring. Every night you were playing somewhere else and traveling and uh, having to do sessions and photo sessions and interviews and all that uh, so it was too much for Paul and he left and um, this is when Jimmy just jumped the chart jumped in and played bass because uh, that was the time he, he didn't want to play sessions anymore he wanted to be in a band uh, so he he was very um, very excited about joining and he he played bass to start with um, and then it seemed silly him playing bass, so he swapped with Chris, and Chris played bass, and the two of them played lead guitar for a while, but, which was very hit or miss, I tell you. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of horsepower on stage. So go back though. You talk about you know when when Paul when Paul left the band that he just tired of the lifestyle, the constant touring you know, playing the same songs and sets over and over again. And you were not only touring on your own, but you were also part of these package tours, the, the Dick Clark tours. And, and that, yes. must, that must have been incredibly exciting and also incredibly exhausting. Well, yeah, that, that was the point. It was, the, it, it, it was great when you, you, know, you played to audiences that knew you and you had hits and all that, but the downside was you had to work very hard. And something like the Dick Clark tour was very, very, uh, very tiring because you played quite often played twice in one night uh, in in different places, uh, and then you the whole tour would travel in a Greyhound bus, which was, you know, <laughs> quite tough. It was a uh, and you'd be, and every night you'd be playing somewhere. There wouldn't be a night off, so it was quite hard. And, and the formats then, there were a lot of acts, and every everybody played a, a pretty short set, right? Yes, yes. We played. We maybe played fifteen, twenty minutes or something. And uh, I, I remember playing a gig down south, and, and Jimmy Page was the lead guitar by then. Um, Jeff had left because he. He couldn't hack it either, all, the, all this crazy traveling. Um, Jimmy was playing lead, and someone shouted out, Turn that guitar down. Oh, gosh. <laughs> From the audience somewhere down south, <laughs> which was quite funny. Oh, my gosh. And who were some of those acts that you remember on those Dick Clark tours? Uh, well, there was uh, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. There was uh, uh, Gary Lewis and the Playboys. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't remember so much the other the other acts. They weren't so famous. Um, so, no, those sort of acts that were in the 
different. They were in a sort of the, much more the poppy thing than the house. It was the real pop, you know, pop hits. Right. And when you were in the States then or back in the UK, what would, what do you remember from things like appearances on Top of the Pops and Shindig in the States? And, you know, there were so many other great shows, Hullabaloo. And- we did, yeah, we did, uh, we did Hullabaloo and we did um, Where the Action Is uh, and some of those other. And it was always exciting because you never knew who was going to be on. And I think one of the shows where the action is, um, James Brown was on. You know, I mean, playing play a game with James Brown. I mean, that's cra- crazy when you think about it. Uh, it was so exciting. Who, who else would be playing? And it, it, it was better playing in in America than than in England, I think, because Top of the Pops would just be the usual, you know, groups with their with their hit. But, um, it all sat, it all just you watch those old clips of these shows and it's just magic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And of course, of course, miming was quite funny because it became quite obvious in the end you weren't really playing. So that that, that was quite funny to do. Yeah. It was better. It was always better to play live. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years go by, and your run was incredible with the Yardbirds. That initial run of I guess it was five or six years, but then it all sort of winds down. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. It got to the point, where, as you said, you know, playing the same songs every night and, and uh, night to night and playing somewhere every night and ju- just all the traveling. It, ju- it just was too much. And also the creativity dried up without Jeff and without Paul. You know, that, I think the with those two in the band, that was the best Creative, most creative lineup for the band, and without those two, it was quite hard. But the, it, it did work well as a four-piece. Um, but we weren't coming up with any new songs. And then, because Kiss of Death, we went to Mickey Most, who was like a pop producer. He was the biggest pop producer in England, and we thought, well, he'll get us a hit. But um, it was all the wrong sort of music, and he was. He was so overpowering, you know. You sort of had to do what he said. He was one of those, one of those guys. So that didn't work for us either. So in the end, it all went, it all went pear shaped, as they say. Right, right. But everybody sort of, you know, moved on. I guess Jimmy Page, he went out then and formed Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he more or less carried on. The spirit of the Yardbirds because uh, he played some of the tours that were outstanding that we hadn't played. Um, first of all, they they played as the new Yardbirds when he when he met uh, Robert and John and all of them. Um, they played as new Yardbirds and then changed to Led Zeppelin. Uh, so that's amazing. And you went on and had your own band. You had Renaissance, and you had you had a lot of acts and a lot. You kept working right up to when we saw yeah, you a couple I kept years working. until we saw you in Tokyo <laughs> a couple years ago. 
<laughs> well, I kept working because I like to do different different sort of music, you know, and Renaissance was something totally different, and that was fun because it was uh, like an early prog rock band. And it was keyboard orientated rather than heavy lead guitar. It, it, to us at the time, it was very refreshing. And, uh, and then I liked to sing as well, so, you know, I started singing in the bands and uh, and like sort of all, lots of different music and then i got a big kick out of doing my own solo stuff right um, which is i yeah, enjoyed great, that a lot some great records and you and the guys in the band you guys all sort of weaved seems like you were forever destined to weave in and out of each other's lives yes oh yeah 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 definitely because that was a real strong a strong bond, you know, we, we got back together partially when we did uh, Box of Frogs in the 80s, which was a similar similar sort of project, but the four of us, Jeff included. Um, and then, you know, Paul was involved in Renaissance as a producer uh, and Illusion, another another similar band. Uh, so we, yeah, we were we, and and then Chris and I got back together as the Arbors in, um, you know, in in the late nineties. Fantastic. And uh, do you still speak to, you know, any of the guys that are still around? I mean, obviously, you know, some are no longer with us. I know, you know, Keith tragically, I know, died very young. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, we yeah we all talk not not that often, but we talk. You know, Paul and Chris and me mainly, and and occasionally, you know, Jeff. I, I don't really speak to Eric, but um, yeah, we we uh, got together with Jimmy Page a couple of years ago, and we brought out an old album, you know, live at the Anderson Theatre that never really saw the light of day. And Jimmy found the original tapes and remastered them, and they sounded great. So. We all got together and you know put the uh, put our ideas in for the sleeve and that that came out and that was that was a success. That was good to get it out. And Jim, when you look back on those you know those early days, can you believe all that happened to you? You know, did you ever imagine that when you were you know a young boy in London, you know where life would take you? <laughs> No, no, no. How could I? No, no, not at all. I, I never, I would never believe it. And um, I have to say, I've been very lucky, and I'm very thankful that I've, you know, been able to live from the music. I haven't, uh, I haven't made millions of dollars, but I, I've uh, been able to live through it all, and I've, I've been very, very, very lucky. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you were absolute joy to talk to. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, Matt. Pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.